Hello, this is John Mangini, Vice President of Marketing with the New Jersey Bankers Association. Welcome to the New Jersey Banker Podcast. Today, our President and CEO, Mike Afuso, sits down with Julie Rajinsky, founding partner of Comprehensive Communications Group, former Fox News co-host and advisor to politicians such as Governor Murphy and Senators Booker and Lautenberg to discuss the upcoming midterm elections, key issues facing New Jersey, and the potential impact this election cycle could have on the banking industry. Thank you, Julie, for joining us, and thanks, John. Today, I'm joined by Julie Raginski. She's the founding partner of Comprehensive Communications Group, and uh, she has been a friend and a mentor and a confidant for many years of mine, but more importantly, she has advised Governor Phil Murphy, Senators Cory Booker and Frank Lautenberg, various members of the United States House, as well as state legislators. She has worked for Fox News Channel, where she served as a co-host of Outnumbered, as well as The Five. She's also been a contributor to CNBC. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here and great to be with you, Mike. So uh, before we get into the national races, can you give us a roundup on what you're seeing as key issues in key districts in New Jersey? Congressional districts, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Uh, look, I've always thought um, for well over a year that the fundamentals really had not changed and will not change prior to November. I think it's the economy. It always has been the economy. And I think anybody in, in my party who focuses on social issues or issues of democracy, whether it's the January 6th uh, insurrection or the return of Roe versus Wade, is really missing the mark from what voters want to hear about. It's not to say that those are not issues that are critical. I personally am incredibly concerned about the future of our democracy and devastated about the overturn of Roe. But the reality is that voters don't have, most voters don't have the luxury of worrying about those things because they have to worry about what's on their minds immediately. And that is being able to pay for gas to get themselves to work, being able to afford to pay their property taxes, which is not a federal issue, but nevertheless is something that voters are concerned about being able to afford to pay their kids to go to to pay for their kids to go to college and so on. Those are the kinds of things that voters stay up worrying about night after night. They don't stay up worrying night after night because most voters don't have the luxury of worrying about those things and you only have so much bandwidth uh, about being able to access an abortion, especially here in New Jersey where until there is a federal ban on abortion, which very well may be possible if Republicans come into power both in the White House and in Congress eventually. Um, but this is not something people in New Jersey have to worry about immediately. It's not an immediate concern. They don't have to immediately worry about what happens if Donald Trump comes back to power and our democracy is effectively lost. And so based just on those issues alone, it continues to be the economy, whether it's, it's the cost, the rising cost of, of, of produce or the rising cost of gas or the perennial fiscally sensitive nature of taxes that voters always worry about. But this is something that uh, I think my party, the Democratic Party, would be remiss if they didn't focus on almost exclusively leading up to this election. So so what do you think? Those are the key issues. So what do you think about the key districts in New Jersey? So the key districts in New Jersey are the same districts that used to be Republican, but then became Democratic when Donald Trump was elected first in 2016 with, with Josh Gottheimer. Um, and then again in 2018 with Mikey Sherrill, Andy Kim, and Tom Malinowski. Redistricting 
last year made most of those districts more friendly towards Democrats. And barring a massive tsunami, I, I don't see Josh Gottheimer or Mikey Sherrill or Andy Kim losing. It's a different story in the 7th District where Tom Olnowski, the incumbent congressman, is in a district that is made more Republican, uh, about five points more Republican um, after redistricting. And, and he beat Tom Kane, uh, the senator from, or the former senator from Union County, by uh, about 1,000 votes last time around. There are 5,000 more Republicans in that district than there were last time around. Now, I think Malinowski's been running a very good campaign. I don't know that Kane has been running the best campaign, but the tide may be such that uh, it won't be enough for Malinowski to, to hang in there. That's the one I would keep an eye on going into this November. Okay, so so you know we, we look ahead and, and we we you know look back and we look at polling, right? And polling has been a little funky ever since the 2016 race. So, in your opinion, are Republicans being undercounted in the polls? Um, are, are some Republicans not answering polls? Um, is it harder to poll Democrats in urban areas? You know, how how valid are the polls? And I know, you know, in, in New York, we actually saw two polls on the on the governor's race this week that have been, uh, you know, pretty, pretty disparate. So uh, so so what's your feeling on polling and, and, and how it's being done these days? I think polling misses the mark tremendously. And you only have to look at the last governor's race to see how much it misses the mark. Um, you know, you had poll after poll showing that Phil Murphy was winning by double digits or somewhere close to 10 points. When the election actually was said and done, he won by three. The reason for that is twofold. One is in an era, and this has been going on way before 2016, pollsters have been warning about this for, for almost two decades now. But in an era where we communicate in a 140-character spurt, and in an era where people send emojis as opposed to responding in full sentences anymore, um, most people don't have the time, the luxury, or the inclination to sit on a poll polling call for 15 to 20 minutes. Some people do. People who are retired, people who don't work, um, people who don't have to rush to their job because they're being paid by the hour, people who aren't suspicious of pollsters, as a lot of Trump voters are. Those people have time to sit, uh, sit around um, and answer calls, but that's not most people. And so... From that perspective, I think it's gotten harder to poll even before 2016. What's equally as important to think about is the fact that pollsters tend to ask the questions that they want to ask, right? So, for example, they'll say, what do you think about Phil Murphy? We use the governor as an example. And most people will say, oh, I like Phil Murphy. You know, he's a good guy. He's done a good job, right? So people will say, oh, okay, Phil Murphy's job approvals are through the roof. Or, or, or if you had to, you know, Phil Murphy were running against um, a Republican what do you think? And they'd say, oh, no, Phil Murphy, I'm a Democrat. I'm going to vote for the Democrat. What focus groups, which I'm much, a much, much, much bigger fan of, show is something very different. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I did a focus group, four focus groups. I didn't actually do it, but I observed four focus groups of primary Democratic voters in January of 2017. This is the Democratic base. And if you ask them what they thought about Governor Murphy, they would say to you, Oh, I like him. He's a good guy. And then you start delving into, well, what is it that you like about him? Or what is it that you don't like about him? And when you actually start delving into that, the truth comes out, right? 
And there's a whole litany of complaints that they have that are some spe- some specific to Governor Murphy, others just specific to the fact that he's the incumbent governor. And if it were Governor Smith as opposed to Murphy, they'd have the same complaints. But nevertheless, he's the guy in charge. And so once you hear that, which a poll can't really quantify the same way that a focus group can qualify, I heard that and I, I turned to the person um, who I was observing these focus groups for. And I said to him, oh, my God, I think this governor is in a lot more trouble than polls show. And he said, no, that can't be. Look at these polls. He's, he's, he's leading by so much, and he's going to win by 10 points, and, and so on and so forth. And the public polls showed the same, right? It wasn't that sure. internal polls. But the reality is because we don't ask voters what they want to talk about. Very often when we poll, we ask voters what we think we want to talk about. And things that poll well, I keep saying this, and I wish people really took it to heart, Things that poll well are not things that get voters to the polls. Abortion polls really, really well. It polled really well in 2019 when I spent a lot of money um, through an IE that I was involved in trying to defeat a couple of Republicans in some marginally swing districts. And we had polls showing nonstop that the thing that voters most cared about was women's health and gun safety. Well, guess what? Yes, if you ask most people, do you think we should have less or fewer guns on the street? Of course, most people will say, in New Jersey at least, yes, we should. Do you think abortion should be legal in New Jersey? Most people overwhelmingly will say, yes, it should. But it's not something that gets voters to the polls. It just polls well. What gets voters to the polls are things that they, and I go back to the beginning of our discussion, things that voters worry about every single day. Most people don't sit around worrying about getting gunned down every single day because there are too many guns on the street. It's something they really wish weren't the case, but they don't wor- worry about it inherently every single day. Most people don't sit around thinking, oh my God, I'm going to need an abortion today. Where do I get one? Even though they want the ability to get one if they, want, if they need one. But they do I, sit around every single day worrying about how to pay the bills. Absolutely. It's, 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 a, uh, it's, a, very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting dynamic, particularly... Um, among the activist crowd where I think you, you have a, uh, a situation of, you know, both groupthink and confirmation bias. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I, I think you have it just right. Um, but, but that all said, it appears that we are headed towards some type of divided government after the midterms. It appears that Republicans are likely going to take the house and the Senate seems to be up for grabs. And, and, this this economic question, inflation and economic slowdown, et cetera. Um, how do you, how do you feel? So so you really feel that that is the key to the election. It's all about economics. I do, but I also think, look, if you're Tom Malinowski, for example, which is really the, the premier race in the state at the moment, you are running against an opponent who has been in public office for. 20 years in state office, and yet property taxes are through the roof in in his district and in New Jersey, right? He could have addressed some of these issues at the state level, but for whatever reason, he didn't. I mean, there is something to be said about using that as the cudgel with which to beat Tom Kane. I don't know that the cudgel that I would be beating Tom Kane with on a daily basis is abortion. So my point is, just because you're a Democrat and your party's in power doesn't mean that you don't have an economic cudgel with which to hit your Republican opponent. 
It's just that's what I would do. That's what I would do relentlessly. I would I would have this debate about economics, especially, especially with opponents who have a record, right? And some of them do, like Tom Kane, for example. So, you know, there there is a smart way to do this, and I'm not suggesting that Tom Olinowski's not doing that because I think he is. But I think sometimes we let the shiny object divert us, which is, oh, my God, there's an authoritarian threat to our democracy. A hundred percent there is. I personally, I, Julie, spend a really, really, really inordinate amount of time worrying about it. Actually, it's something that keeps me up at night. But I also have the luxury of worrying about that because I've been incredibly fortunate to have the luxury of not worrying about having to pay a few extra bucks for gas or a few extra bucks for groceries. Most people are not in that position. And that's, that's all I'm suggesting. And, and so from a, um, from, from, from a divided government position, you know, in the summer, I think Democrats overwhelmingly saw this anger about Roe, right? And they thought, okay, we're going to ride this all the way to the election. And maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe we somehow still will. But, I, but I've always doubted that, and I continue to doubt it. And it remains to be seen whether, you know, I'm right or wrong. We'll know in about a month, less than a month, a couple of weeks. So, so I want to turn to the stock market because, you know, New Jersey certainly is a, a bedroom with New York City. And uh, we're in the third, third quarter statements are, are either in the mail or people are pulling them up. And the broad market is down 20 percent year to date. Do you think that that has any effect on the election at all? I think it leads to a sense of insecurity because I think people who are um, invested in the market and it's, it's, you know, except for pensions, not overwhelmingly too many people. I mean, most people's wealth is not derived from the market, right? But if you are fortunate enough to be invested in the market, it leads to a sense of um, a feeling of unsafety, right? Where's the safe harbor? Because the bond market's kind of wonky. The stock market's kind of wonky. Or wacky, I should say, not wonky. Um, uh, you know, putting your money under your mattress really <laughs> is not a great solution to grow it. So, so where is the safe harbor? And for for over a decade, I mean, really since the two thousand eight collapse, the market's been the safe harbor. Um, but we also haven't seen inflation like this in a really long time. We haven't seen a market like this in a really long time, you know, in a decade or more. So from that perspective, where, where do you go if you have a couple of extra bucks? Where do you place it? And it, it just leads to a sense of, of fear and chaos, I think, in people's minds with respect to their own financial strategies and their own financial security. I mean, anybody who's invested in the market has obviously seen what's ha- happened to their investment. And if you talk to your advisor, they may say, you know, if you're in it for the long haul, just sit it out, ride it out. If you're not in it for the long haul, if you're retiring soon, you need your money or you've got to, you know, pull it out for whatever massive expense you need, then you're, you're scared, right? And you yeah. can't, can't put it in real estate because that's obviously um, – with the rates being what they are. So, so where do you put your money? And I think that's something that, that is a concern to a lot of people who, again, have the ability to diversify their portfolios, but are not sure exactly where the safe harbor is to diversify right now. I get it. I get it. We're hearing it. We're hearing it all the time. So let's, let's fast forward. We do think 
at least when I when I say we, I mean me. But I, I think you would agree that we're going to face some level of divided government, whether it's uh, Republican House, Democrat Senate, and Democratic presidency, or full de- full Republican Congress and Democratic presidency. What what do you see? What do you see about government in the future under divided government? Are they going to govern? What do you see them doing? Is this is this the end of of any type of of uh, governing that's done? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, look, it is not in the Republican interest a to have a functional government because they want Joe Biden to fall on his face because they want the White House back in two years. So it's completely in their interest to have create as much chaos as possible and blame it on Biden. It is also not their governing philosophy now to actually do any kind of policy. And I I say that not because I'm trying to be partisan here, but what was the defining feature of United Republican government since the Trump administration came into office, right? The the first two years you had a Republican House and Senate and a Republican president. The only two things they got done were the Trump tax cuts, which they're now talking about um, trying to make some elements of them permanent or, or reauthorizing them, which I guess is fine, except that if you're worried about inflation, I don't know that tax cuts for corporations and and the very wealthy among us are going to help with inflation. Um, We saw that experiment just fail in Britain to the point where Liz Truss, the prime minister, was kicked out effectively after 45 days when she tried that policy um, because the markets rebelled, not because some bleeding heart liberals rebelled. And if you're worried about, um, if you're worried about the deficit, obviously that's also not something that, (laughs) that, that, uh, that that bodes well for that. Um, companies have historically, not historically, but since those tax cuts went into effect, didn't hire more. They just decided to do more stock buyback programs with that money. So, uh, look, you're you're talking about a, a policy of trying to make these tax cuts permanent, and I guess if they get the Senate back, trying to push through as many judges as they possibly can to to, to move the courts further to the right, because that's what they have done in the past. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember Infrastructure Week that took place every every single week, and we never had Infrastructure Week until Joe Biden came along. So I wouldn't look to see any kind of big, grand plans like infrastructure or um, some other huge investment in, in the states or some other huge investment in public policy programs because it, it's not either in their political interest or their ideological interest to see any of that. So what drill it down a little bit. To, uh, to banking and financial services. Do you see any changes um, in the next two years for, uh, for, for my industry? Well, I think it, it's a question of what the White House will accept, right? I mean, if you have a House but not a Senate, that's Republican, um, probably not much change. If you have a House and Senate, that's Republican, then what does this president trade um, in exchange for whatever the priorities are for the banking and financial services industry. Um, you know, look, the financial services industry has massive priorities. Sometimes they align with the Democratic Party. Sometimes they align with what Republicans want, which is fewer, obviously, fewer regulations on, on Wall Street and, and the financial services industry. But again, when you have a divided government, I think you can probably expect the status quo at the moment unless and until you have a president and a Congress that's willing to trade um, 
for whatever those priorities may be. And I have no indication that that's something that either party will want to be doing at the moment. Well, I, I appreciate the insight. I'm going to ask you one last question. And uh, this is this is strictly an opinion question. If Donald Trump declares for presidency, does he clear the Republican field? It depends if he gets indicted or not before the end of this year. Interesting. And by the way, if he gets indicted before the end of this year, he might clear the Republican field. That's not, that's not to say that's not to say this would be a negative for him in the Republican primary. Interesting. Very interesting. It also depends a lot on how Ron DeSantis does in this election. Certainly. Certainly. Well, Julie, I personally appreciate it so much. I, I, I have learned so much from you today, as I've always learned from you in the past. Um, I, I think your analysis of the electorate is uh, is spot on. Um, I, I think you are absolutely um, one, one, of the, one of the best political analysts that we have grown in the state of New Jersey. So I'm very proud to know you. I'm proud to have worked with you. So uh, thank you very much for your time and for the New Jersey Banker Podcast. I'm Mike Afuso. Thanks, Mike.